Well, after last week and uh, talking about destiny and how uh, Jacob and Esau did bartering and traded off the destinies, uh, I felt it necessary to come back and talk about how we recapture that lost passion. Sometimes that when that destiny is gone, we feel like we've made so many mistakes that we can't possibly ever recapture it again. And I felt it really necessary to come back and revisit that context again. I read this week, as, as a matter of fact, about a guy who had misplaced his passion. His, his hope was in the wrong thing. His hope was in money. As a matter of fact, he walked into a bank in Littleton, Colorado this week with a note. And on the note it said, uh, give me $5,000, I have a gun. And handed the note to the teller. And she complied and handed him the $5,000, and he got away. However, he was arrested later that afternoon because he forgot that he wrote the note on one of his own checks. <laughs> I love stupid crook jokes. If you don't have enough of them, see Gary Post. Gary used to be a state police officer, and he's got a lot of them. Misplaced focus, misplaced passion. He just didn't understand it wasn't his destiny to achieve his passion in life through money. And many people believe that it is. Here, here is a true passion, a true focus of destiny. Before recorded time, before man was here on earth, God predestined that Jesus Christ would become a man and die to defeat death once and for all. Jesus understood his destiny. It was what we call the consummation of the ages. As a matter of fact, maybe you've read it before, Galatians 4.4, 4, it says it this way, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. It's called the consummation of the ages. And then again, it says it in Hebrews 9.26, very specifically, read this along, but now once at the consummation of the ages... He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is passion and destiny. Jesus understood at the consummation of ages, when everything was right, he would appear on earth and defeat sin for all time. And now he's ascended to the majesty on high and sits at the right hand of the ancient of days. True focus. Jesus understood his passion, and his destiny. I have a question for you. What sense of expectation did you arrive at church with this morning? Perhaps that you might discover a new truth about God. Perhaps that for, maybe he would take you a little deeper to understand his character and nature. Perhaps you arrived here this morning just content to enjoy music, worship time, get to see some friends. There's some in this room who have arrived here today with absolutely no sense of expectation at all. Life has dealt you so many severe blows that you're just in despair mode and actually in survival. And you just count it a joy to get enough encouragement to get through another week. Passion isn't even an object in your life. Your sense of anticipation and passion is completely gone. 
We all have a measuring rod of what success looks like, what passion should be in the back of our mind. For everybody, it's different. We have a measuring rod that is very high, and Scripture begs this question of you, especially the Scripture we're going to look at today. What is your passion focused on? What is your true passion, and what should it be? What can you lock your eyes on for the marathon that's ahead of you? You only have one life. What are you going to focus on? Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, gives us one very particular, specific insight into what Jesus' passion was focused on. It's in Hebrews 12.2. It'll be on the screen. Read it with me. This is his finish line. This is what he was sprinting towards. Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You talk about a theologically pregnant statement. This word joy, it's pronounced kara. It means exceeding gladness. There's only two places that's used in Scripture. The other place that's used is talk about when we give to God financially. Give out of the joy of your heart, out of exceeding gladness, out of abundance that's flowing out of you. The joy that Jesus had set before him was your redemption. That he would bring back into focus, back into line, your ability to have a relationship with the Ancient of Days. The joy that was set before him was fulfilling God's plan for him. True passion. It wasn't because... He had a short-term view. He had an image of what the big picture was, a very clear, concise picture. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. It's an amazing thought. That's all preface. That's all set up to what we're going to look at today. A few weeks ago, it's 2 in the morning, and I received a phone call. Now, I was sound asleep. And on the other end of the phone was a very perky voice, an annoyingly perky voice for 2 a.m. in the morning. And it said, hello, this is Gina from GL Magazine. Is Mackenzie Kring available? I have a fantastic offer I'd like to make to her. And I said, are you kidding me? It's 2 in the morning. You're calling to make a sales call? And she said, oh, sir, I'm so sorry. And before I could actually hang up the phone, I hear faintly in the earpiece as I'm reaching for the receiver to click it off, Oh, sir, we're in another time zone. I didn't mean to do this. Click. I found as the years have gone on that my patience fuse is growing increasingly short. I found a few other changes in my life as time has gone on. As a matter of fact, I've accepted that a few of my passions have completely changed. I've accepted that I'm probably still not on the phone call list for the baseball scouts, and I'm not going to get a call to come play in the majors. I've accepted that I'm probably never going to get to fly the space shuttle. It's okay. I've accepted that some of those items on my to-do list have to take a back seat. They've, They've dissipated. But it's during the course of time when I begin looking for some really clear direction that I understand that this verse that I've shared with you over and over again since April, when New Hope started in seed form, This verse is the great direction for me 
and it's a great direction for you. It's Romans 15.4, and this is what it says. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. I have to come back to that verse over and over again to get God's direction. When I was in flight school, back when I was in college, I learned a very key, important element when I was a freshman in college. And that is that whenever you get lost, if you have any difficulty at all, you can always call flight control, and they will give you what is known as airport vectors, vectors to get you back on course, to get you where you need to be. A couple friends of mine also learned that in our junior year. They were on spring break, and they took one of the school's airplanes down to Florida for spring break. Now, they got down to Florida, and they were lost, and they didn't know where to go. They were looking around. We're always told, fly low. Look for the cities in the area and look for the water towers. Read the names on the water towers. If nothing else, that'll get you back to where you need to be. Sometimes when you see planes flying real low over cities, that's what they're doing. They got confused. These particular guys didn't do that, and they just started calling into the nearest number that they could find on their airport directory list. So they dialed it in, and they called in their call numbers and said, uh, we're having problems, we're lost, can we come to the airport and touch down? And that's not the language they used, but that's pretty much what they said. Air traffic control got on and said, Seven Lima Tango, you are in unauthorized airspace, you may not touch down here. We have to, we're lost, we're low on fuel, can we touch down please? Seven Lima Tango, look out your left window and look out your right window. They did, and there's two F-15s flying right alongside them. They said, touch down at the airport runway in front of you, they looked in front of them. There is a five-mile runway in front of them. They landed at Cape Canaveral. Yeah. It was when they started taxiing down the runway, and they looked off to their left and saw the space shuttle out on the ramp. They realized what they had done. Airport vectors didn't help them in that case. They went the wrong direction. God says... In Romans 15, I'm giving you vectors. I'm giving you specific direction. This is what he says if you pull it back out of that verse. It is God who gives endurance. It is God who gives encouragement. It is God who gives hope. Endurance, encouragement, and hope. That's what I need to be reminded of. When I want to recapture the direction God wants me to be on, Look at the passages that he's written down for you. I give you endurance, I give you encouragement, and I give you hope. Passion and hope are intimately intertwined. The two coexist together. I don't know if many of you saw the movie that was made about Johnny Cash's life a couple years ago called Walk the Line, but there's one very specific point, a poignant moment, in which when Johnny Cash is totally undiscovered, he walks into a recording studio and he tries to convince a radio producer, a record producer, that he's the next guy. And the guy gives him a shot. Begrudgingly, he lets him stand in front of the recording microphone and begin playing a song. And they play some lame old hymn. And it's just gone on and on. And it doesn't sound very good at all. It doesn't even have good lyrics to it. And the producer stops him in the middle of the song and says, Is that all you've got? 
I mean, really, is that the best you've got? And Johnny Cash says, well, there is one other. And the guy said, you mean to tell me that you're going to come in this studio and you only got like two songs? Johnny, you need to picture it this way. If you're laying in a ditch and you've just been hit by a bus and you've only got one sentence left to say, this is the thing, this is the thing you choose to do, this is your one shot at making a a recording, that moment coalesced in Johnny Cash's mind. That's when he stepped back in front of the microphone and recorded Walk the Line. That was a poignant moment for him because somebody pushed his button to say, you have one shot. That's it. Make it your best one. What is your passion focused on? The writer of Proverbs chapter 13 said it this way, and his name is Solomon. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The reality is that if you lose your hope, if you lose your passion, ultimately, you're going to get a sick heart. The writer of that proverb ought to know his daddy was an incredibly passionate man. His daddy was King David. Solomon watched a father who was very, very passionate But unfortunately, he made a lot of mistakes. You know, you've heard the old adage, two steps forward, one step back. David did a whole lot of this. Two steps forward, three steps back. He made a lot of mistakes. He learned some tough lessons. David lost his way a few times, but along the way he discovered this. A passionate pursuit of anything in your life is incredibly personal and intimate. But when it's fulfilled... It is a tree of life that all the world will watch. It is incredibly fulfilling. I would like you to turn this morning with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. There's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Somebody might need to yell out what page that's on in in the brown and black Bibles, but 2 Samuel chapter 6. 218, Michael says. Is that the brown Bible or the black Bible? The brown Bible, page 218. There's brown Bibles and black Bibles. By the way, if you don't own a Bible and you see those Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, feel free to take one of those with you today. They're there for you. 2 Samuel chapter 6. It'll also be up here on the screen. Now let's look at what David did to recapture his passion. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Remember I told you in the past that whenever you see the Lord of hosts in Scripture, it's talking about the commander of the armies of heaven. This is The hosts are the warriors of heaven. He is the Lord of hosts. And so the writer here is saying, I understand who this is. And David understood who this was. He went to recapture the ark. Now, don't think of this as some antiques roadshow venture. This is not like finding the Declaration of Independence in your attic. This is the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And David had just become king. Saul died, and David was placed as king over Israel. And his first objective was to go out and recapture, relocate the Ark of the Covenant. 
If you were here a couple weeks ago, you may have learned that the Ark of the Covenant was lost in a battle. The Israelites carried it with them into war, and they were defeated, and the Philistines captured it. And the Philistines held it hostage and took it to different cities. But God broke out upon them and caused a lot of plagues, and they released it. And they ended up sending the Ark to a man's house, and the Ark had been in storage for 20 years. Saul had never bothered to go get it and bring it back. David was saying, I want to go get the ark. All right? This is the background on this. Now, this, observe how this is described. Look back at that verse again. The ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Note this. Think and speak highly of God. He is not the old man upstairs. He is the Lord of hosts, the name, the very name of God. Do not take him lightly. 30,000 fighting men as an escort. Is that not amazing? David chose 30,000 warriors to go with him. That had to be really inspiring to the students of that time. Remarkable. They had heard about the ark. They had never seen it. A whole generation had gone by. It had never been visible. 30,000 warriors to escort David to go and get the ark. When's the last time you've seen something that disappeared for 20 years? I tried to think of something that maybe disappeared back in the 1980s. My mind kind of landed on the Space Shuttle Challenger. You know what's still missing today from the Space Shuttle Challenger? When it exploded in 1981... The black box voice recorder went to the bottom of the ocean and they never found it. Can you imagine today if somebody found that and brought that back up to the surface and we could actually listen to the voices of the astronauts who died in that horrific explosion? All of the world would be focused on that. That's the sense of what's going on here. Only more, magnified over and over and over again. This has the Ten Commandments inside it. The very finger writing of God on stone tablets. These people totally understand this. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Iho, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Everything seems okay up till now. Verse 4. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Iho was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. This business plan had all the marks of success. 30,000 warriors, all of Israel, which was a population well into the millions by this point. David gathered them all together for the celebration. He's got the orchestra there. Everybody's having a good time. They're selling cotton candy and popcorn. They're celebrating. This is a big day. But then this happens. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Do you remember last week 
when we talked about trampling under the things of God, we called that person a fornicator. Someone who takes lightly the things of God and they just trample it under. That's what happened here. His irreverence made him a fornicator and he took lightly the things of God, became too familiar. Here's the danger. This ark was living in Abinadab's house for 20 years. Uzzah, who died, was Abinadab's son. The ark of God had become too familiar to him. He didn't remember or he didn't obey the commandments that God had placed upon the children of Israel. They placed the ark of God in a cart like a piece of luggage. That was not what God had commanded them to do. God had said, my ark is so highly revered that it's to be carried on your shoulders, on rods, up above high where everyone has seen it. If you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know exactly what I'm talking about. At the end of the movie, they did it right. They carried the ark out on their shoulders on a rod. They understood anybody treating God's things lightly will be destroyed. Uzzah treated God's things lightly, and David did it as well. David had been living with the Philistines for 20 years. While Saul was pursuing him, he went into hiding and he lived among the Philistines. The Philistines had no regard for God, and he'd forgotten about God's ways of doing things. God never changes. God never changes. His ways never change. Even though David had been gone 20 years, even though Uzzah had been living with the ark, God never changed just because they presumed that he did. You need to keep that high in your mind. God's throne does not need the hand of man to steady it. It is not necessary. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And it still is. The picture Perez-Uzzah means like a dam bursting open and the water gushing forth. God broke down upon Uzzah. He doesn't tell us how he killed him. He just destroyed him. All the people understood, again, who they were dealing with. Fear and reverence was restored to the people of Israel. If it was so offensive to take a hold of the Ark of the Covenant without the right to do so, how much more severely do you believe it is for those who claim the name of Christ and become believers of the living God to turn their back on Him and walk away? Here we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. In the context I just described, we're talking about Jesus, the Son of the living God. People who take hold and then turn around and walk away. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 10.29 addresses this. It says this, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled a fornicator, the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. It's a staggering thought. 
2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 9. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. David was afraid of the Lord that day. Would you say justifiably? I have a real problem with people who say you don't need to fear God. I totally and wholeheartedly disagree. And all of Scripture disagrees. You need to have a healthy, fearful, respect, understanding. He is the God of gods. Fearing God is not to be taken lightly. What do you think David was thinking about the next three months that he was in Jerusalem? It says for 90 days that Obed-Edom kept the Ark of the Covenant into his house. What do you think David was thinking about? Do you think some of the wind had been taken out of his sails? Do you think perhaps there was a loss of hope? That maybe his passion had been decimated? See, his great desire to do this was because he was the king. And he understood that people had lost their hope. In all of Israel, Saul had been wicked. And the people had lost their focus on God. And David wanted to restore their hope. And now he's blown it. Something's gone terribly wrong. We're given some insight into David's feelings. As a matter of fact, later today, if you want to read this, you can also go to 1 Chronicles, and it has the exact same story with different details and fills in some of the blanks. But we're given some insight into David's feelings when he says this question, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Now what are we going to do? The plan that I had made is no longer in existence. It tells me that he was frustrated and his game plan wasn't coming together. And more importantly, especially for those of you who serve in leadership, the people who were looking to him to be their leader, their hope had been diminished a little bit. There's some great deal of disappointment going on here. Now, how am I ever going to get this ark? God obviously is very angry and upset with us. And it's this point that many of you, myself included, give up hope. We forget about our singleness of passion. And we just set it on the shelf and say, one more of life's disappointments. I guess I'll just have to move on to a new course. Romans 15 says that God is the God of hope. May the God of hope is what we read in Romans 15.4. The God of hope. God doesn't want to take away your hope. And He doesn't certainly want to take away your passion if it's godly hope and godly passion. And that's what people get confused with. Do it God's way. Verse 11, Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Interestingly, Before this thing had gone into storage and the Philistines had captured it, God struck dead 50,000 men in one day just for looking into the ark. They had taken the cover off and tried to see the Ten Commandments. And God struck dead 50,000 men. 
And now Uzzah has died just for touching it. Can you imagine what Obed-Edom felt like having this thing in his living room? What would that be like trying to go to sleep at night? This eerie glow coming out of the room next to you. I bet he didn't sleep for several nights. But God did something very nice for him. He blessed his house and all that belonged to him. The same powerful hand that killed Uzzah because he was a fornicator blessed Obed-Edom. Verse 12, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. Oh, we don't get any detail. How did he do this? Read the next verse. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. When those who were carrying the ark, the bearers, your translation might say in verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark. See, you don't find the ark this time sitting in a luggage cart with a bunch of ox. He'd gone back and done it the right way. They lifted the ark upon their shoulders, the men that God had designated, and they're doing it the right way. And now, because they're doing it God's way, God restored passion. Read with me verse 14. And David, the guy who was disappointed, and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. I'm sorry, but picture Speedo, okay? It's kind of what it's like. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. David took a bold step, and he went back to this house where he had messed up before and said, God, I want to try it again. And they did it right this time, the way God had prescribed, carrying the ark. Dancing before it with great joy this time because God's not killing anybody. He's thrilled with what they did. What was the result of taking the bold step? Look back at verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of trumpet. Shouts and sounds of trumpet from hundreds of thousands of people with great joy because God's passions were done God's ways. That's a different picture than what we read just prior to that. When things are not done according to God's ways, it is doomed to failure. Things are done God's ways, it's doomed to success. It's a great picture. Israel is now on the threshold of its greatest achievements in all of history. David's line is firmly established. And Jesus will be the descendant of David's line. David set up a godly kingdom. But that's for another time. Here's how he did it. Look with me at the things that David did. He did three specific things to recapture his passion. He drew near to God through genuine heart searching. And it went on for 90 days. If you go to 1 Chronicles, you'll see that David recounted the things that he had done wrong. And he understood that he made mistakes. Secondly, he feared God. He put in proper perspective just who is in control. And third, 
he revered God with worship. A new start, a whole new beginning. God restored hope because he is the God of hope. Look with me back at Romans 15, 4 again. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Just after Paul finished that, he wrote out a prayer, a prayer for the believers of Jesus. This is what he wrote. This is my prayers, Paul's saying. May the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You feel like you're overflowing with hope? Maybe what you need to do is go back to God's way of recapturing your passion to ignite you. Because it's a sad thing when people have lost hope. I listened to a heart surgeon being interviewed a couple weeks ago on television, and he was talking about how many heart surgeries that he has performed down in New Orleans since Katrina. And he said, you mark it down wherever it occurs in the world, wherever there's been a disaster, and people have lost hope. There is an increase of heart attacks and heart disease. The writer of Proverbs wasn't far off when he said it causes a heartache when you've lost hope. This week, with the anniversary of 9-11, there were many, many interviews that took place. But one that stood out in my mind was the interview of a pastor in New York City who was a fireman in Tower Number 2, on 9-11. And since the events of 9-11, he became a pastor. He was a believer when all those events occurred, but he said willingly he would admit he was not serious about the calling God had on his life. He said this, the events of 9-11 for him were a cataclysmic turning point because he realized that everything that he could accept up till that point was teaching and learning, and that God would give him a brand new beginning, a whole new hope with which to carry out the rest of his life. A fresh new day. He did an about face and said, not that being a fireman is bad, but I believe God has a new beginning for me, a new call on my life. I hope there's no cataclysmic event that has to take place in your life for you to do that about face and get a fresh new passion. It's a new day, and you can start today. Would you pray with me? Father, we feel um, sometimes just plain overwhelmed with the thought and the need to recognize just, man, how incapable we are of turning our life around. 
I, like everyone else in this room, Father, need to be reminded every day that you are the God of hope. You give encouragement, you give endurance, you give perseverance. And we say willingly, that is what we need. Father, whether we're mature in the faith or not even there in relationship with you yet, we need to be reminded you are the God of hope. I ask, Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room who have a relationship with you, that you would make very clear what your passion is for their life. And for those in this room, Father, who don't even know you yet, God, I lift them up before you right now. I ask that you would just work on their heart today. In the quietness of the night when they lay down, you would cause them to deal with the need to have a relationship with you. And that relationship can only occur through your Son whom you willingly gave. God, you said Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Help them to understand that. God, give us that passion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.